You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, LeChuck, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. If I were to truly do the story of the Barbary Pirates justice, the justice it deserves to tell that story in full, it could, and maybe it should, be a podcast of its own. It's a big story, at least as big as Caribbean piracy, and probably bigger. When I start to focus on the scope of Barbary piracy, I start thinking about comparisons between the two stories, and some unavoidable similarities pop up. The most glaring of these is the similarity between Barbarossa and Henry Morgan. They were both of them privateers. They both had their eyes on a larger political goal, and both of them were ethnic minorities within their society. They both were religious, but not tremendously so, although Barbarossa probably more so than Henry Morgan. But what really drives home the comparison is the conquest of Algiers. If Barbarossa were Henry Morgan, Algiers would be his sack of Panama. The primary difference in those attacks, though, is that Morgan left Panama. If he had conquered it, if he'd stuck around and named himself governor, that would be a lot more like what Oruj Barbarossa did. What makes them so similar, in my mind, the attacks on Algiers and Panama, is that both of them brought those privateers to the attention of their royal imperial rulers. Morgan had to go back to England after Panama to face judgment. You couldn't just wage major military operations against Spain without, you know, telling someone about it, asking permission, maybe. But in the end, he affirmed his loyalty to the crown and was made a governor of Jamaica. Orouge had to travel to Istanbul to face judgment he had waged a major military operation against Spain. Now, he had received permission from the Sultan's agent, but Henry Morgan had also received permission from the King's agent, the governor in Jamaica. But Selim I had never consented to make Oruj himself the ruler of Algiers. It was a delicate political moment. Wisely, Oruj relinquished his claim on Algiers and acknowledged it as the Sultan's possession. The Sultan, wisely, granted the lordship of Algiers to Baba Oruj. He was named Baylor Bay of the Western Mediterranean, that is, the governor of the westernmost Ottoman provinces. 
He was the first Ottoman governor of several provinces, newly brought into Ottoman rule, including Algiers. He was also given supreme command of the empire's naval forces in the region, and a new name. He was called Oruj Rais. Rais was, as we've discussed before, the Ottoman rank of captain, a ship's commander. Philip Ghost tells us, quote, All the corsair chiefs were named Rais, which means merely captain. No less than three outstanding figures in the following century bore the name of Murad. Hence, Murad Rais is as likely to appear in the annals of Barbary pirates as Captain Jones in the roster of the English Navy. End quote. In the case of Oruj Rais, it became his name, but he wasn't just Captain Oruj, he was Admiral Oruj. He would have been 42 years old at this point, and he had already amassed an impressive list of titles and nicknames. Admiral, Provincial Governor, Oruj Rais, Baylor Bay of the Western Mediterranean, Baba Oruj for his ferrying of dispossessed peoples across the sea, Gumus Kol for his silver arm, and Barbarossa for the color of his beard. And here, much like Henry Morgan, he stopped being a pirate. He turned into an administrator. He was in charge now. He rarely went to sea himself. He was the patron of untold numbers of privateers, and he signed commissions at least for dozens of captains. When he sailed for Istanbul after the attack on Algiers to meet with Selim I, the sultan, he brought his top captains with him. There was Kurtuglu, the son of the wolf, who was himself made an admiral and named Kurtuglu Rais. There was Ahmed Piri, the navigator and mapmaker, the nephew of the famous Ottoman admiral, who was also given the title, Piri Rais. There were great honors given all around, Piri and Kurtuglu most of all. They were sent, by the sultan himself, on missions of their own. They led an expedition to Egypt to liberate Egypt and most of the Levant from the rule of the Mameluk Sultanate that had ruled Egypt since 1250. That is a fascinating story in its own right, but it's secondary to our story here. That conquest, though, brought not only Egypt, but the Levant and most of Arabia back into the Ottoman Empire. Cairo, Damascus, and even Mecca, which had formerly been under a different sultanate, now belonged to the Ottoman Empire. This brought great honor to Kurtuglu and Piri Rais. They became famed admirals and captains. Oruj Barbarossa was perhaps even more powerful. He had more lands under his direct command. Everyone that commanded forces in the battle for Algiers was famous and powerful and influential, all due to this meeting with the sultan. Except for the one captain that was not there to meet with Selim I, his ear, Barbarossa, the younger brother. He had been left behind when Oruj sailed for Istanbul. Someone had to look after the city, and that duty fell to his ear. His brothers and his friends all came back with new titles and new responsibilities, but all he had was the nickname that he shared with his older brother. That would have been a frustrating time for the young pirate captain, but Oruj had a job for his ear. He sent him from the castle in Algiers to bring some stubbornly independent Barbary villages into the fold. And it was just boring work. They were busy intimidating orchard farmers and shepherds into swearing allegiance. There wasn't a whole lot of honor in it, and his ear was understandably upset. 
Meanwhile, Oruge and the eldest of the Barbarossa brothers, Ishak, were out conquering cities. They were cities that belonged to an independent caliphate who was loosely allied with Spain, the Zionid dynasty. They were an indigenous Berber dynasty that revolted against Omayyad rule in 1235, and since then they'd controlled much of modern-day Algeria and Morocco. Oruge Barbarossa, with his commanders in tow, marched in to take those lands in the name of the Ottoman Sultan. His first great victory in that campaign, widely celebrated, came in 1517 at the fall of an ancient Phoenician settlement called Tinas. The second came the next year in 1518 with the fall of the Zionid capital Tlemcen. With that victory, Oruge made himself the king of Tlemcen, the ruler of the former Zionid kingdom. Those conquests, along with his rule of Algeria, gave him lordship over a kingdom larger than almost any other in the Ottoman Empire. It was a North African kingdom larger than the whole of what would one day be French Algeria. So while Hazir was out bullying farmers, his brother Aruj was making himself one of the most powerful rulers in the world. But the thing about prestige and power, especially prestige and power gained in warfare, is that it attracts enemies. Anyone looking to increase their own prestige can do so easily by taking yours away from you. In the battle for Tlemcen, the Zionid sultan was killed, but his heir, Sheikh Muhammad, fled the capital for Morocco, and there he sent word to the king of Spain. The Spanish king marshaled an expeditionary force, and he led them across the sea later in 1518. This was the year when Charles V, king of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor, came to defeat the pirate Oruge Barbarossa. This is episode 77. Holy War. It's absolutely unfair, and not really all that accurate, to call Oruge Barbarossa a pirate here. He was a privateer at one point, but by 1518 he was a king, and a major Ottoman official. Now, there might be some comparisons to be made with Henry Morgan, but certainly not with Sam Bellamy or Henry Avery. With the man who had come to do battle, Charles V was arguably one of the two most powerful people in the world when he arrived at Oran. That was the last Algerian city of any real size that still belonged to Spain. But despite his power and many lands and titles, Charles was still a new ruler. He'd only been king of Spain for two years and Holy Roman Emperor for less than that. He was only 19 years old here. This fight would be one of the first true tests of his leadership and of his strength, so he came prepared. There were 10,000 Spanish troops that he'd brought with him. There were the armadas of Spanish galleons that carried all of them to North Africa, heavily armored vessels. There were perhaps another 10,000 soldiers, native North African Berbers, that came to their ranks. Some of those were conscripts from the Spanish holdings in Africa, but many of them were anti-Ottoman locals, members of the former Zionid dynasty that didn't want to see her fall under Ottoman control. But man and ships aside, perhaps the greatest asset that the emperor had was the commander of his forces. His name was Diego Fernandez de Cordoba, and he was 55 years old. Cordoba was a commander out of legend. He had led the forces of Castile for King Charles' grandparents in the final days of the Reconquista. It was his armies that destroyed the last remnants of the Caliphate of Cordoba and that won Iberia once and for all for Christendom. 
In recognition of his service, Diego Fernandez had been given titles and honors and even a viceroyalty, and he was given this post as a governor in this idyllic Mediterranean port city, but that wasn't a retirement. It was an important posting, and one suited for a military man. Should things stay peaceful, he would have had the opportunity to build estates and grow wealthy and watch his grandchildren play. But things did not stay peaceful. His king, King Charles I, a 19-year-old boy, brought 10,000 men and ordered Diego to recapture Clemson and Tenas. Diego ordered his force of about 20,000 men to move out in three squads. The main army, which was commanded by him personally, was to march directly east on the city of Clemson and to besiege the Barbary forces therein. That first force was made up primarily of Spanish soldiers. The second force was that made up mostly of Bedouin Berber soldiers. Now they were to march south into the fringes of the Sahara, and then east until they were south of the city, where they could stop anyone from escaping into the desert. The third force was smaller than the other two, and that was under Lieutenant Garcia de Tineo. They were to take the ocean and sail east of the city and set up camp. Now, they weren't to besiege Clemson. It would have encircled the city had they done so, but Diego Fernandez wanted to leave Oruge Barbarossa an escape route, an open way out. But that wasn't mercy on his part. If Baba Oruge thought it would be safe to flee back to Algiers to his more secure holdings, Lieutenant Tineo was to ambush the forces as they fled and to hold there long enough for the rest of the Spanish army to arrive. It was a force intended to ambush and trap the Ottoman forces, and some of the best soldiers that the Spanish army had were with this force to the east of Clemson. Perhaps even more important was their job to stop any relief from arriving to Clemson by land. Should any caravans full of food try to reach the city, Tineo would stop them. When Arouge heard that a Moroccan army was marching on Clemson, he prepared his forces for a fight. He'd been expecting that heir of the king to rally forces to his aid. But he only had about 1,500 Ottoman soldiers with him. Once he realized that the size of the force coming for them was much larger than what he could hope to defeat, he sent word back to his brother, Hizir, in Algiers, and asked for more soldiers as soon as possible. Then he turned his army around. He took them back behind the high walls of Clemson and prepared for a siege. He probably thought that staying behind those walls was the safer option. His brother and the sultan, his king, would eventually send them aid. They controlled the seas, after all, so thousands and thousands of soldiers would surely be coming. Had he instead fled immediately, had he surrendered the city and made his way back to Algiers, he might have stood a chance, but he didn't do that. An armada of well-armed Spanish galleons sailed into the harbor of Clemson after he had blockaded himself inside, which ended any hope of an army arriving by sea. But he still had one chance. If he could hold out, the east was still free of soldiers, as far as he knew, and his brother would be able to send aid. It's entirely possible here that his ear never even received word that his brother needed help. If he did receive word, he may have ignored it, considering the slight he felt at being left to 
babysit shepherds and peaceful cities, that's not entirely impossible. Whatever the case, though, no relief arrived at Clemson. The forces of Spain and Morocco besieged the city for six months before Arouge finally admitted that no help was coming, and he had to take his army and flee. It was not uncommon for a besieging force to leave a path free for the army trapped inside. This was, in part, gentlemanly, honorable behavior, but it was also just smart tactically. If your enemy thought they had a way out, they would take it, oftentimes rather than fight. If they didn't, and they thought that their only recourse was to do battle, well, you would find out just how hard a man could fight when everything was on the line. That eastern road to Aruja's eyes was still open. Now, he was no fool, he knew it was probably a trap, but he thought he would be able to fight his way free of any trap, and even if he would be unable to, dying in battle with your sword in hand was a better death than starving like a coward behind high walls. So, his army left Clemson in December 1518 and headed east for Algiers. Diego Fernandez de Cordoba rallied his forces to give chase. An author named J. Morgan wrote in 1732 a work entitled A Complete History of Algiers, to which is prefixed an epitome of the general history of Barbary from the earliest times. And in that work he writes that the commander, Cordoba, told his men that Oruj Barbarossa was the man who, quote, first brought the Turks into Barbary and taught them to taste the sweets of western riches, end quote. J. Morgan came to the conclusion that it was Barbarossa that introduced the modern world to piracy, to real piracy, as they came to know and love it by 1732. It was Orouge that showed downtrodden men that they could taste those riches if they were willing to risk their necks at sea. It probably helped to sell his book. And actually, this work by J. Morgan, written in 1732 at the height of pirate fever in Europe and the New World, is to blame for a lot of the reason that we see these Ottoman rulers, privateers, yes, but not really pirates, as some of the first pirates. See, Captain Johnson's A General History of the Pirates was selling like mad at the time. But that was current events. This book, by J. Morgan, it aimed to give historical context to the European people that were still dealing with very real piracy in 1732. So we need to be wary of accepting any of J. Morgan's conclusions. However, Oruj Barbarossa did march his men as hard as he could out of Clemson, but they couldn't march that hard. They had been starving during the siege, so he wasn't moving fast. The Spanish army, who had been eating quite well, thank you very much, was catching up with them. So, Oruj Barbarossa ordered the rearguard to his forces to fling down silver and jewels all along the road, he had hoped that the greed of Spain would stop the marching soldiers in their tracks, but Diego Fernandez de Cordoba was too canny for that. He wasn't going to fall for it. He was implacable. He ordered his men to continue on, on threat of pain of death. He was at this moment on the heels of the Turkish army. Oruge marched at the head of his force and led them across a river that might have been their salvation, if they could cross the river in time, they could set a defensive post at the river and keep the Spanish from crossing at all. What Arouge didn't know was that Diego Fernandez knew the potential danger here, and he had made this very river crossing the 
appointed spot for Lieutenant Garcia de Tineo to fall on Orouge and his men. It wouldn't have made much of a difference anyway. Just as the rear guard was beginning to cross the river, Diego Fernandez caught up and pounced on them. Had Orouge been perhaps a more realistic commander, or perhaps a less moral human being, this may have served as the chance he needed. He could have taken this opportunity to get away while the rear guard fought. Well, he could have had Lieutenant Tineo not been there. But Orouge was not that kind of commander, not the sort of man just to let his men die. So he turned his forces around and he started them back toward the river. He wanted them to cross again and aid their brothers in the fight against the Spanish. And it was while that action was taking place, with some of his men facing west and the others on the wrong side of the river, that Garcia de Teneo arrived. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. The battle was, well, it didn't last terribly long. A force about the same size as the entirety of Arouge Barbarossa's 1500 fell on what was left on the eastern side of the river while they were facing the wrong direction. They didn't have a chance. According to Spanish records, it was actually Lieutenant Tineo himself that drove his lance through Arouge Barbarossa's chest. Now, whether or not that actually happened, it was actually Teneo that cut off his head and his solid silver arm and presented that body to King Charles. Teneo was given titles and he built a castle in what was a beautiful medieval Gothic style that still stands today. His crest, his family's shield, shows an arm of pure silver underneath a head with a fiery red beard. Tineo was the victor here, but even more than just winning the day, he was seen as the victor. He was portrayed as the victor and propped up by King Charles in the eyes of the people as the victor of the battle. See, the supreme commander, Diego Fernandez de Cordoba, was killed in the fighting. I like to think for his part that that was how he would have wanted to die, a lifelong soldier going out with a sword in hand before he was too old and infirm to even grip one properly. But I doubt that that was how Orouge saw things. He may have taken the chance and realized that this was the best way he had to die, but he had only just been given real political power. He was still young enough to wield that power for years to come had he lived, and North Africa might be a very different place today had he won that battle. 
It's worth noting that the eldest brother, Ishak, was dead after this battle as well, but sources differ as to whether he died fighting or in the conquest of Clemson six months earlier or during the siege, but in the end there was really no chance of any other outcome here. There were 1,500 Ottoman soldiers under Aruj Barbarossa against 20,000. That was a decisive move by Charles V. See, this was his answer to that test that I mentioned earlier. This was the first real opposition to his rule, and he could not afford to leave it in question. So he allocated a huge amount of money and resources and manpower to ensure that he just could not lose here. It was the sort of decisive end that might have chased the Ottoman Empire off for decades. I mean, imagine that you are playing chess, and you take your opponent's rook, and then he stands up and punches you in the face. Really, really hard. That's not how the game is played. You probably wouldn't continue to play chess with that person. You would probably leave the room. And that's what Charles was aiming for here. Someone took the city of an ally, not even really one of his possessions. But he was new to the crown, and he wanted to show that he would not be messed with. So he brought an overwhelming force to bear on Aruj to send a message to the Ottoman Sultan Selim I not to screw with him. And under normal circumstances, that might have worked. It probably should have worked. The balance of power would have been restored in North Africa, and the Ottoman Empire and Spain would have lived along a tense border. Because the Ottoman Empire was busy, they were still digesting Turkey and Greece and Egypt, and they were just starting to reintegrate Arabia and the Levant into their empire. But imagine that you're back in that imaginary chess game. You take that rook, but before your opponent can punch you in the face, you suddenly die unexpectedly of anthrax poisoning. Your opponent is winding up for that punch, but you suddenly fall over dead at the table. But then, your son takes your place at the board. And your son is not the sort of person to step back from a fight when somebody punches them in the face. And that's exactly what happened here. Selim I, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, died of a rare form of anthrax while on campaign, outside Damascus. It was sudden and terrible. But then his son, Suleiman, traveled to Istanbul and took up the Ottoman imperial throne at 26 years of age. When he did, the man who would be his greatest rival, Emperor Charles V, was still only 22. Charles' ploy should have worked against Selim I, against an older and more experienced Ottoman sultan. He was established as emperor, and he could accept a defeat in Barbary. However, much as Charles had experienced when some Ottomans challenged him early in his rule and he was forced to respond to show that he would not be weak, Suleiman saw the defeat of Oruj as a challenge to which he was forced to respond. If he failed to respond, or failed to win even, he would be seen as weak in the very first months of his rule, and that was something he could not suffer. Literally. In all probability, if he was seen as weak that early on, some cousin or general or provincial ruler would have had him killed and supplanted him, and everyone in the empire would have thanked him for that service. So Charles' plan to show an overwhelming force of strength which should have worked had the situation stayed the same, 
fell apart. He thought to force the Ottoman Empire to blink, but instead he found a willing and capable foe. Now I'd like you to, one final time, put yourself in the room where that imaginary and surprisingly violent game of chess is being played. The punch is thrown. The man dies of anthrax, his son replaces him at the table, and then that punch connects with the son. But the man who was punched, the Ottoman Sultan, doesn't flinch. He prepares to punch back. But before he can strike, his friend walks in. A friend who is crazy-eyed and furious and with a huge curved sword in his hand. And with a long, bushy red beard. Okay, so the metaphor is starting to break down a little bit here. The point is, Oruge Barbarossa was dead. But Spain would have to contend with his little brother, Hazir. He was the only surviving son of Yakup, the last of the Barbarossas. And I should mention that some sources tell us that he only took up the moniker of Barbarossa after his brother's death. That he considered himself Barbarossa II, and even maybe used henna to dye his auburn hair a brighter red to match the name. There might be truth in that, but even if his hair weren't a natural red, he was the man that would make the pirate Barbarossa a creature out of legend. Ghost tells us, quote, In appearance, Kair ed-Din was even more striking than his brother. His stature was advantageous, his mien portly and majestic, well-proportioned and robust, very hairy with a beard extremely bushy, his brows and eyelashes remarkably long and thick. Before his hair turned gray and hoary, it was a bright auburn, end quote. When Hazir Barbarossa learned of everything that had transpired, his first move was to travel immediately to Istanbul to meet with the new sultan. This was probably the moment where Suleiman learned of the disaster for the first time as well, and remember, he had never met Hazir Barbarossa. He probably had met Oruj before, and most certainly he knew Piri Rais and Kurtuglu Rais, and let's not forget that Hazir's first Ottoman patron was none other than Suleiman's uncle. The Barbary Corsairs that were to follow the Barbarossas were much more traditional pirates, and even most of the privateers that sailed under Hazir and his elder brother were dispossessed, outcast, economically depressed people. They were pirates. But the Barbarossas, Oruj and Hazir, were, well, Let's say that they were British, and this was 1680. They would have been the sons of a colonial governor, of a powerful colony, maybe Virginia. They would have had the backing of a royal family member, maybe a duke like the Duke of York, which was a position held by the king's brother. And then they were given a territory of their own to govern. You know, the king never met with Ed Lowe, and he certainly never gave him a colony of his own, but that's exactly what Suleiman did for the Barbarossas. He made Hazir an even higher rank than his brother had been, the Pasha of Algiers and of Algeria. That's a title analogous to a viceroy. And he was also granted all of his brother's other former titles, Baylor Bay, Admiral, and even the name Rais. And that's worth thinking about for a second. Ahmed Piri was named Rais and is known to history as Piri Rais. Kurtuglu Muzlahidin is known as Kurtuglu Rais. Baba Oruj, Barbarossa I himself, is typically known today as Oruj Rais. 
it's an important naming convention in the Ottoman Empire, and it's one that sticks with you. But we don't call Blackbeard Captain Teach, at least not usually. We'll see what we do on this show. But we also don't call Hizir Barbarossa Hizir Rais for some fairly good reasons. His accomplishments and his notoriety and his infamy in the eyes of Europe were going to make him a more important character than that simple name could convey. And you might have noticed that I was bringing up the ages of everybody involved. Had the Spanish throne been ruled by an older, more seasoned commander, or had the Ottoman throne continued to be controlled by an older, more seasoned man, we might not have seen what was about to transpire transpire. But instead, we have Suleiman, we have Charles, we have Cortuglu, we have Piri, and we have Hizir. All of them are young men. All of them are men who are eager to make a name for themselves and to gather as much power to themselves as possible. So Hizir asked Suleiman to send him his former partners, Piri Rais and Kurtuglu Rais. And Kurtuglu Rais actually had a son around this time who was named after Hizir himself. They were close friends. But beyond that, they would have been a huge help to Hizir in his battle against Spain. But Kurtuglu and Piri were busy elsewhere. Piri Rais was preparing a fleet in the Mediterranean, of which he would be admiral, that were intended to carry some 100,000 men from every corner of the Ottoman Empire, along with their best cannons and gunpowder, not to mention the Sultan Suleiman himself, to the island of Rhodes. This attack on Rhodes was Suleiman's answer to King Charles' attack on the North African coast. There was a message in it. Oh, Emperor Charles, you brought 20,000 soldiers to retake a city held by privateers? That's cute. I'll just take my 100,000 soldiers to capture an ancient fortress held by the oldest order of crusaders and guarded by men of every European nation. And it was quite a siege. Those hundreds of ships, led by Ahmed Piri, blockaded every approach by sea to the island of Rhodes and bombarded the walls of the fortress from their vessels. Suleiman himself took command of the troops on land and besieged the city. Reportedly, he was behind the very first plan to breach the walls of Rhodes. Remember in the second Lord of the Rings movie, during the Battle of Helm's Deep, when an orc carrying a torch that looks like a sparkler ignites a huge cache of gunpowder and blows up the wall of Helm's Deep? Well, that happened underneath the English garrison at Rhodes. This is another one of those moments in the history of Ottoman expansion that is seminal. It's important to the story. However, it's not all that important to our story of Barbary piracy. But this is up there with the retaking of Mecca and Medina and Cairo and Damascus. This was a big deal, but not because it was an important position necessarily, but because of the psychological message that taking roads sent to Europe. It also lasted for quite some time. The fighting didn't stop there when the English garrison was blown up. Really, the fighting had only begun there. But when the fighting was over, the Knights Hospitaller negotiated a truce. They negotiated for the right to leave the island in peace. They could take all of their weapons, all of their valuables, and any religious icons that they wished to take with them. 
those terms were kept to by the Ottoman Sultan. But there were other terms. Those terms allowed any citizen to leave freely for three years and to exempt any Christian on the island from taxation for five years. They promised religious toleration and included leaving the churches on the island intact and allowing freedom of worship. Christians could visit their houses of worship in peace. None of those terms were kept. As soon as the Knights of Rhodes left their island, the religious and civil leaders of the island were butchered en masse atop the highest tower in the city. That tower stood above the single gate that served the fortress, and today it's still called the Red Gate due to the blood that flowed down the tower over her walls. That evening, Suleiman, the conqueror, prayed to Allah in the church of St. John the Baptist, the patron saint of the Knights Hospitaller. Of course, it wasn't a church of St. John anymore. It was a mosque. So, Ahmed Piri was busy preparing that invasion when his zir asked if he could be sent to help him out on the North African coast. Suleiman was not going to part with that admiral. In fact, he informed his ear that when the siege began, the sultan would require his ear to send a thousand of his men and best vessels to join in the attack. That was his duty as pasha. For now, Ahmed Piri Rais was busy. Kurtuglu, the other friend that he would have liked to have sent to him, was also busy. He was establishing the Red Sea Fleet of the Ottoman Empire. See, after the Ottomans took control of Egypt and Arabia, they had access to the Red Sea once again. Now that fleet that Kurtuglu was busy building would eventually spread into the Indian Ocean and eventually clash with the Mogul dynasty in India. Now, we're going to be seeing a lot more of the Red Sea Fleet in about 200 years. We're a lot closer to that in real time. But they're going to serve as a perpetual thorn in the side and occasionally begrudging allies of pirates like Captain Kidd and Henry Avery. So all of his allies were busy. His ear just returned to Algiers without his favorite commanders. But the Sultan did send him several thousand elite Janissary warriors. Under his rule, it became clear that things were going to be different in Algiers. First, he took all of the Berber soldiers he could raise, along with the Sultan's Janissaries and his brother's former army, to retake what Charles V had retaken. He captured Clemson. As soon as he returned to Algiers, he marched on the city and took it back. Mere months after Oruj had died, his zir reclaimed that crown. Then his soldiers and his ambassadors secured the allegiance of every city and every tribe and every guild in Algeria. If possible, they were convinced. If necessary, they were bribed. And if all else failed, they were killed. He claimed all of the power that his brother Oruj had once held and did so quickly. Now this might seem like a fool's errand. This had not ended well for his brother Oruj, but Hazir felt safe and retaking all of those lands because he did not make the one fatal mistake that his brother had made. His ear concentrated on the sea. Ownership of the Barbary coast demanded dominion of the southern Mediterranean. He had thousands of privateers that were, in fact, more loyal to him than they ever had been to his brother, 
and they were given, under his ear, free reign to attack any European shipping, and they did so. Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, French, English, no one was safe, except for the Dutch. Now, remember, the Dutch weren't a nation yet, they were still the Spanish Netherlands, but... Ships from Amsterdam, for example, had a habit of carrying Sephardi exiles. In 1492, no small number of exiles from Spain had left for Amsterdam. But more on them later. The Dutch, though, they were given special privileges in the Mediterranean, and they were allowed to roam and trade freely with Barbary Corsairs. This will go on to play into their fight for independence later on. Now, this might have more than a little to do with the man who was commanding the sea forces of Hizir Barbarossa. With Ahmed Piri and Kortuglu busy elsewhere, Hizir turned to the man who was now the top commander in his fleet. Remember Sinan, that Sephardi exile that signed up to sail with the privateers years ago? Well, he'd proven himself to be a talented mariner, and he'd risen through the ranks quickly. He was still young, probably only 25 or so, but he was in command of his own small armada that ferried still more Portuguese conversos from the Iberian Peninsula to Algeria. He went on fantastic, clandestine missions to speak to every private Jewish community in Iberia. He told them about the welcoming homes that they could find in Algeria, of the opportunities to be had there, and of the generosity and strength of his lord, Hizir Barbarossa. But as exciting as these clandestine missions are, we don't know much about them due to their secret nature. But he had to give all of that up in 1522. His lord, Hizir Barbarossa, called him to Algiers and asked him, to lead the fleet. They agreed that their fleet would continue smuggling people across the sea, but that would no longer be under the oversight of Sinan. He was now to directly oversee all maritime operations of Pasha Hizir Barbarossa into the kingdom of Algiers. Next time we're going to look at Sinan Rais, who the Portuguese named the Great Jew. Under his command, the fleet of Algeria and the fleet of Hizir Barbarossa reached a pinnacle of Mediterranean piracy that wouldn't be reached again for decades. We're going to look at the exploits that made he and Hizir Barbarossa the most feared commanders on the sea, and then we're going to look at their European counterparts and the build-up to the battle that would define the Mediterranean for centuries. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has left us a donation through the website, everybody who has signed up for a free trial at Audible, everybody who has left us a review at iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, everybody who has shared us on social media like Twitter or Reddit or Facebook, and everybody who has told your friends and neighbors about the show. Without all of you, I couldn't do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. 
Tonight 